Hey, I'm Stephen Jolly, host of Melbourne Calling, and in this episode I'll be interviewing Tim Gurner, the famous avocado sandwich man, probably the most famous developer in the city, and probably the face of capitalism in the city too. Trying to get into the mind of somebody who's worth over $600 million, somebody that you don't meet every day of the week. Let's see what, you, what he has to say, and I hope you enjoy the show. Tim, thanks for coming on Melbourne Calling. Welcome to the Fits. Thanks, Steve. You're like the probably the most prominent developer in Melbourne, definitely the most successful. Um, I guess you're like the public face of capitalism in a sense in Melbourne. <laughs> I mean, how did it all start? I mean, what the media say is you got 34k from your granddad. Yeah. You opened up a gym in Elwood. I mean, most gym owners that I know are pretty like, juiced up and like you'd never expect them to go from 34k to 600 million plus. I mean, how did you get there? I know there's a little bit of good timing with GFC finance money money coming out of finance into property but I mean how would you explain to the general public how you got to where you are now yeah it's a bit it's a bit of a funny story I'm, I'm definitely a different story to most developers so my mum was CEO of Berry Street for child child welfare for 30 years so non-for-profit my dad was an engineer who passed away when I was 20 so I came from a very simple upbringing we didn't have a lot of money at the time we were definitely middle class so I went to Kerry grammar but it was a you know, I was always the kid with the blazer a couple of sizes too big because we couldn't afford it each year. But it was a, I had an amazing upbringing, but not a wealthy upbringing at all. And um, my, I had great support from my mum and dad to try and be whatever I wanted to be. And so I did, I went and did commerce first at Melbourne Uni and finished RMIT. And then halfway through that, I decided I wasn't a great student, Stephen, probably like you as well. I was, my patience was very low. So I started working part-time with a guy called Tony Pride, a real estate agent in St Kilda, who was doing a bit of development on the side. Amazing mentor for me. Um, I did that with him for about two years and then I saw this opportunity in Elwood, which is a gym. Um, at the time I had literally no money at all, not even, wouldn't have even had two grand in the bank. And I went to my grandfather who was an entrepreneur and had lots of businesses over the years and said, look, I've got this idea, I want to start a gym. And he said, look, I'll loan you some money, but it's going to be at an interest rate and you have to pay me back within two years. Me thinking, yeah, my granddad's not really, it's not really loan, he's not going to make me pay it, but he did every single month collect his interest and make sure I was paying. And it's probably one of the best things I ever learned that it was, you know, I never got anything for nothing back then. Um, so I got that money from him, which allowed me to then borrow money from National Australia Bank. So I borrowed um, $150,000 from NAB to start the gym. Um, and the business was a, it was a great business. We got it as big as we could in a short period of time, but it was something that I wasn't overly passionate, it's very long hours in gyms as you'd know, it's sort of 6am till 10pm and you can't make a huge amount of money. Um, so I ended up selling that business 18 months later. Um, it was an interesting time, I think you know, so my dad passed away two months after I opened the gym doors and I lost three grandparents in the next month after that. And it was a very tough time for me and my family and I sort of had to make the decision, was I going to fall over on my debt to NAB and you know, be bankrupt at 19 or 20? Or was I really going to dig in and have a real crack at what I needed to do to make, you know, make myself a man and protect my family and step up? And that was a key driver for me. So that sort of set my business diligence and how I work and worth it can grunt. Um, so that really drove me to then property. So then I went and worked for a company called FKP, big public company, which I completely hated. Um, I was not good at being told what to do at all. Um, it's just probably like you. And I lasted there for about nine months and I went and approached this guy called Maury Schwartz. So Maury, who does a lot around this area, um, was a big developer at the time doing some really, really different stuff. And so I started with him the next day, he never employed anyone at that time. Started with him and he's been, he was and still is an incredible mentor to me. You know, he's not the best business person in the world because he's much, much too creative and interested in too many things to be too focused on business. But taught me the importance of marketing and brand and having, you know, confidence in yourself to really do great things. So. Without him, I definitely wouldn't be where I am today, without doubt. Without Tony and him in particular, I've had two very important mentors. Um, and Maury had a couple of issues at the time up with some property up at the snow, which you, you might have read about back in the day. And you know, there was an opportunity for me to roll up my sleeves and really try to help him there, which we did. And after that, he gave me a percentage of the business. So I was able to get a percentage of Panurban at the time, which is my first sort of step into a form of ownership and development. We did some great projects together, GFC hit, he decided that the big projects in the city were still going to be okay. I had a bit of a different view. I thought it was going to get pretty tough. You know, I remember still like it was yesterday when the Lehman Brothers guys are walking out with the boxes and I thought, geez, this is, this is getting pretty serious. And so I started a business called Urban Inc. with another guy, Danny, at the time. And the theory with that was we wanted to do 
10 projects of 30 diversify as opposed to one of 300. So at the time we were using, um, we were using other investors' money, so private investors were investing with us and we slowly, slowly built up over time. And you know, people say to me, oh, you know, you've, you've done so much in short period of time, like you know, overnight success. For me, it's overnight success in 17 years of brutal work. So it's not, you know, it has been quite a slow, long journey. It just might appear to others that it's come quickly. Mm. And I, I guess you're about to enter into your biggest project, if I'm not wrong, Fisherman's Bend. You got a billion dollar part of the, the action there. Yeah. 80,000 people are gonna be moving in there, yeah. 480 hectare. It's basically a new suburb um, for Melbourne. Yeah. Um, in your view, how can we ensure that we don't make the same mistakes as Docklands and Southbank where, you know, beautiful apartments, but yeah. they're totally soulless. Yeah. And playing catch up with schools and infrastructure and childcare and all the rest of it. I mean, what's, do you think that's just the government's responsibility? You've got nothing to do with that. That's not your problem, so to speak. Or, I mean, what, 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 how do you see it's going to pan out at Fisherman's Bend? Yeah, I think Docklands is, it's a shame. I think it will be great in the end, um, but it has taken too long to get there. Absolutely, it's the developer's responsibility. Absolutely, it's the government and the community. I think, like you've seen here in the city of Yarra, this whole developer versus community versus council is just the most stupid. It's, it's totally irrational and doesn't get the best outcome. For something like Fisherman's Bend to work, there has to be the parks plan, there has to be the schools plan, there has to be the trams plan, trains plan. And I think they've tried to do that this time, definitely tried probably better than we did at Docklands back in the day. The only thing I'd say is there's this, you know, and, and what people don't see, and everyone just thinks it's big, ready, rich, rich developers, which is completely not the case. Most developers actually don't make much money and a lot of them go under because it is a very, very hard game. What has to happen is the governments and the authorities need to work with the developers and work out ways to give them extra yield or extra height or extra revenue for contributions to other things. So affordable housing, obviously a big thing in your world and social housing. Every developer is willing to do it if they can afford to do it. So coming in and saying, okay, you've got to do 7% affordable housing or 20% affordable housing without any give and take just doesn't work because the numbers financially simply won't work. Whereas in the UK and the US, firstly in the US, they've obviously got visas that help people build affordable housing. But in the UK, they say to the developer, okay, you can do 10 stories with no affordable housing. We'll let you do 14 if you put 20% affordable housing in. And it actually becomes a commercial model that can work for the developer. Most developers I know actually do care and actually do want to give back. But at the same time, we work on pretty thin margins and we have to be able to make things work. So forcing open space and forcing those things on developers just simply doesn't work. Are you, have you been offered anything by the state government in terms of extra height in return for affordable housing? Or I haven't even had a phone call, no. Yeah. So as you know, I, I, I know you're close to Richard Wynne, but I've tried to talk to Richard Wynne quite a lot. It is difficult to get access to the planning minister um, or his advisors. I found out about our approval through the newspapers. Um, so I didn't even find out through the minister's office where on the front row of Fisherman's Bend, as you know, so we are the front site and we're a very major site. Yeah, we did work hand in hand with them through the entire process, absolutely, and, and in the design process there was some really good conversations. But the conversation was never, you know, it has to be 8% affordable housing. Mm. What can we do to help you make that a reality? It was, it will be 8% affordable housing, it will be this social housing. So density controls, basically, that sort it's of way of looking at, correct. like they do in Vancouver and correct. Hong Kong, it's, it's, New York. It's got to be give and take. The developer should be forced to do some things and should be encouraged to do them, but maybe forced isn't the right word, maybe it's encouraged. You know, we will give you extra space or whatever it is if you do contribute back to the community, which I think any good developer actually wants to. Mm -hmm. You're doing a lot of work in Queensland at the moment and you've said that the Gold Coast about to enter its biggest property run ever. I found that quite surprising mm -hmm. insofar as, you know, we've had this slowdown with, the, with the COVID and so on. Yeah. Why, why do you think that's taken place? I mean, yeah. I know there are a lot of cranes there at the moment. It's interesting, I was up there Thursday, Friday looking at our site and um, the number of agents that we spoke to that said that we just do not have enough product for the number of buyers right now. I mean, COVID's been a, if you interviewed me in March last year, I would tell you that I'm very confident property prices are gonna correct 10 to 20%. And probably not a bad thing, to be honest. I, I probably think it wouldn't have been a bad thing because it needs to reset at some time. I was completely wrong. Now I think we'll be up 10 to 15% at least this year. And there will be, we'll be in boom conditions, which is what we're seeing now. I think what we all misread was, how much money travels overseas each year. 
So the amount of money that goes to Europe, America, Asia, that is now here and people are spending it here. So people are saying, you know what, well, I don't, haven't spent whatever, 20, 30, 100 grand in Europe or America this year. Therefore, I can actually go and invest in an apartment in the Gold Coast. I want to get out of Melbourne. I need to get to some heat. And it's, that's what's pushing the market up there. And I can tell you the sentiment up there was extremely optimistic. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. The, the first time we met was when you bought a piece of land on the north side of Queen's Parade in North Fitzroy. Um, you wanted to go 16 stories. There was no... I had no grey hair then before that one. Well, you know, that's uh, the pressure. You, 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 this is the question I have, actually, because up until then, um, you're a developer, you have to deal with banks, you have to deal with clients, um, you have to deal with construction companies. But I, I guess it seemed to me, at least this is the first time, that you had to face sort of a very organised community in a marginal seat that had some political power, political weight that they brought to bear on, on this development. So you wanted 16 storeys. I mean, to be fair, you, you were within your rights to ask for, to go as high as you wanted because there were no controls over that site whatsoever. Yep. The community um, wanted eight. Yeah. Um, and then there was massive community mobilisation, big public meetings, pressure on the council. And then Richard Wynne brought in the interim controls a couple of days before VCAT. I mean, how did, that must have been a new experience for you f- facing up against a, not just a, a, a planning minister, the local MP who was, I suppose, waged a bit by the community, but yep. also a very, very organised community that got a... I think you, at the end, you got, you got 10 stories at the end, I think yep. it was, wasn't it? Yep. I think the community wanted um, eight, you wanted 12, you ended up with 10 yeah. Yeah, for memory. So what, what's your thoughts about that in hindsight? Yeah, I think, look, we deal with objectors all the time. As you know, I met with about 150 objectors there and every single one ended up withdrawing their objection and we found a a great mediated position. The disappointing thing with North Fitzroy was it became personal. People were attacking me personally, as you know. There was a pretty serious hate page created against me as if it was my fault. I think what people misunderstood about this site is it is designated for height and for density and what we did would have been seen as a very normal and we thought very highly arguable position of what we originally submitted. Now, we went for a design that was more out there. We thought it was a good design for the building. Um, Clearly, people didn't think it was, right, from an urban design perspective, and I think it's important the community has that say. I think the thing that was very difficult about that process is, you know, conflicts of interest worry me in planning. Um, When you've got a planning minister whose council it is, who the people who elect him to be next planning minister or not are the ones that are sitting there saying you need to stop this development and when he turns up to meetings I think it's controversial. Um, He won't meet with me so he didn't get any two sides of the story. I think any form of one-sided planning is an issue and I don't think political intervention should ever happen in a seat where you sit, which is Richard Wynne's seat, obviously. In so what would be the alternative, in your view? It like should have gone through the normal process. It should have been negotiated through council. Um, everyone would have had their normal say, and it would have gone to VCAT, and VCAT would have been able to make the decision based on its merits. Now, well, he could ne- have still called it in as minister if he'd wanted to, even if it had gone yeah, to but, VCAT, but he which should, he's done at times. He should also, but maybe you should look at abstaining from ones where there's political issues associated with it. Yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. I guess from the community perspective, they would say, well, then we would be the ones victimised by living in the planning, planning ministry. Yeah, but seat, I, think, I, think he, I think he could call it in and have other people involved. It could have got the government, I could have got the architects, um, government architects involved as an example. It wasn't, you know... Because three times he's brought in interim controls in Yarra on your developments. Yeah, um, yeah, all mine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, well, I feel I mean, very lucky. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's luck or bad luck. I do think it's the, it's the strength of the, the, the community here and putting pressure on the planning minister and on the council. And you know, yeah. sometimes you've the had only, to. The only thing with that is take he, a, not a defeat, but at least a, you know less than what you originally wanted. Yeah, I mean, he's never done it in any other council, right? So that's the that's the issue that my me and my advisors had, which is, I think, when there's political motivation in there, it's a very dangerous ground. Mm. Um, and as you know, we lodged the Supreme Court against him for. I can't remember what it was at the time, but misuse of political power, I think it was. Um, It was something that I did. I knew we were never going to win that. There was no chance it was ever going to be something we could win. Um, I did it because I thought it was important that power wasn't misused, Mm. I guess is my point. Now, irrelevant of the planning, I have no issue with the planning minister. It's a very tough role. Um, I don't don't envy him at all. And I think he does some great things. I think he does some things I don't agree with, but that's normal, right? I don't have an issue with Richard at all. You know, I think the process with North Fitzroy was unfortunate because it became personalised and attacking, where we, you know, there's 
whatever there was, 300 objections. We've had sites with more objections than that before. It's just these guys took it to a very personal position as opposed to let's sit down and work out what can actually be done here. I offered to meet with them multiple times. They didn't want to meet with me. So there's a, there's a position where, yes, you might be an objector and you want to get the best outcome, but are you doing it for the best outcome or are you doing it because you enjoy the controversy of it? And we felt that there wasn't much give and take between us. Now, they might say the same about me. So as I think you know, I meet with all of our objectors always in every site. So I think that's really important that the community and the developer try to work together to find an outcome to take a bit of pressure off council too, because I don't think it can all be sitting on council's hands. I don't think anyone would look back at that process we've been through a Queen's Parade and think it was a successful process. Um, Council's has probably been okay, but it's, it's been a challenge. You know, we just finished our third VCAT case. It was an eight-day VCAT case finished two weeks ago. Um, so it's been an incredibly expensive and difficult and stressful exercise for everyone. Just on a different topic, we had um, John Setkin here on the show a couple of weeks ago, and um, I just wonder when it gets to the stage where you've got a development and you have to choose a construction company, um, why would you, if I was a developer, I mean, just looking at it purely from a financial perspective, you would just think, well, I'll just go for the cheapest builder I can get my hands on. Um, but you often use uh, builders that have got an enterprise bargaining agreement with the CFMU, for example, Hamilton Marino, um, Hickory, and I'd imagine they'd be slightly more expensive than your paces of the world and others. So why, why do you do that? I mean, I think it's good. I, I'm, you know, we, speaking as a, as a CFMU rank and filer, yeah. we want to see more flags on the, on the cranes and, and EBA rates and higher wages for me yeah. and better conditions for me than on a non-union job. Why do you as a developer sometimes choose a more expensive developer, uh, sorry, construction company that has an EBA with the CFMU rather than one that doesn't? Yeah, I think simply for us, it's we're trying to build a brand that's sustainable and, and long-term. So it's something that you know, we promise big things to our buyers, as you know, we promise very ambitious mm -hmm. projects and we need to make sure they're delivered without people falling over. And builders in particular, you know, there's been tough times for builders over the last 20 years in different cycles. And the EBA guys are the guys that are more structured, they're more strategic, they're more about, they have bigger balance sheets, they have a plan and a purpose. And I guess for us, we need all of them to complete well. And I think the unions do create a level of sophistication and force the builders to be a bit more serious. Now, we've got a couple of non-unions in a much smaller space, but 95% of our jobs will be union. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Just, just with COVID, I, I noticed in one of the financial papers that you said that you've had 99% settlement despite COVID. Mm. And how have you pulled that off? I don't know, to be honest. I, I was very nervous in March. We, th we assumed it was going to be a disaster. We were worried how would valuers get through, how do banks get through, how do we even get the purchases through. We try to create a really special product. I mean, Spanish Club is a beautiful building that the community have always really loved, the buyers really love. When's the club in. moving in there, by the way, do you know? So they're in there, they're right, in. Okay. They've just On got the, the, front, floor, the yeah. front space they're struggling to lease. So they're, yeah, okay. they're trying to lease that to get some commercial income, but the, the club is open um, at the back there. So it's oh, fully functioning, which is great. But um, yeah, so we're very fortunate. It went really well. And I think it's, it's a product based thing. People, when you get to the end of the building and it's as good as what we told you day one, then people still do want to proceed, which is great. You said also with COVID that you personally are doing 20 to 40% less travel. And I know a lot of builders around here have been saying to council, you know, we've got offices we can't sell. Can we get rezoned so that we can turn them into apartments, do something with them, they're just sitting there idle. Yeah. What, what impacts do you think that COVID in terms of travel, but also in terms of the possibility of offices being turned into homes, obviously in some cases they'll have to be rezoning. Yeah. Do you think that's something that will need to be looked at in the medium term? Yeah, I term? think it's, it's a difficult, I think it's probably too early to call yet. Um, I think that the suburban, I think areas like Collingwood, Fitzroy, I mean, this pocket, as you know, I love it. And I think it's probably the hottest commercial and resi market by far in Melbourne right now, because it's got the old heritage, it's got the charm, it's got the character that everyone loves. And I think, I think a lot of the CBD office buildings and those workers will force the businesses to push out to the suburbs where they don't have lifts and they don't have to have that, you know, public transport into town. I think that will be a big pressure point. I think, you know, there's a lot of talk at the moment about office, empty office buildings and is that going to continue? My feeling is when immigration gets going again next year, we will get back to normal. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of people out there saying that immigration won't get back to normal and, you know, how are you going to change your business? My view is if immigration doesn't get back to where it was, forget about my business, no one has a job. Mm. There'll be no jobs in Victoria and there'll be no jobs in Australia because we are a country that is reliant on immigration that fuels jobs. So I try to take the view that 
the government's not silly enough to think that immigration's not coming back, so it will come back, and most likely it will come back and they'll push it very, very hard, and we're going to look like a country that has managed the situation very, very well. You know, sitting here doing this when most other countries are locked down. And I think immigration will be pumped even harder than where it is now. So I think then that will get the commerce going again, it will get the office busy again, and I think we'll enter a, a bit of a boom in, in a couple of years. Just wanted to talk to you about the, the contradictions in that boom, because on the one hand, you know, developers are doing well, construction companies are doing well, and you know, speaking as a construction worker, we really haven't had a downturn since 1990. I mean, it's on, been unparalleled. Um, you know, we've got the highest wages of any construction worker in, 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 in the Western world, the safest conditions, but most importantly, it's been boom conditions since 1990, with the, with the exception, obviously, of the ups and downs of COVID. But then, you know, in, in, the, in the two years before 2018, I think it was a quarter of a million homes were built in Melbourne, and it's probably the same again in the next two years. Yet, there's record numbers homeless. We've got people suffering rental stress. Um, we've got people couch surfing. We've got young people finding it more difficult than ever to buy a home. Yeah. I mean, do you accept that, that there's you know, a contradiction between capitalism and the system that we live under, building all these homes, and yet we've still got this problem for so many, especially young people, I mean, do you see any, do you see that like that as, as I would as a socialist? A or? massive problem. I mean, massive, and, massive and do you problem. take any responsibility for that? Do you think that's a government problem or, I mean, what, what's your view no, on it's, that? It's everyone's problem. We all should be taking responsibility for it, of course. I think the big misconception in what the property market does for affordability is, you know, I find it really interesting when people say the Chinese came here and forced prices up. What the Chinese actually did when they came here was created a huge amount of supply that let housing not run rampant in terms of price. What people forget is that the property market is simply dictated by supply and demand. If demand exceeds supply, prices go up. If there's more supply than demand, prices come down. So in, you know, the city of Yarra is a prime example, right? It's, the council are very, very hard to get approvals here. It's virtually impossible nowadays. You know, council is restricting supply significantly and all that is going to do is significantly increase prices over the next 10 years. So the easiest way to get affordability back into the market is to actually let a large amount of supply through the gates. You need to have excess supply to demand, otherwise prices will just continue to boom and boom. And you know, I find it really interesting, the uh, city of Yarra, I think the target was 20,000 people, new people by 2030, is that the number? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the way the planning system's going in the city of Yarra, it'll be 2,000, like it'll be nowhere near 20, and there'll be 20,000 people wanting to come here, but there'll be 2,000 approvals and prices will just run through the roof. So if you want to look at it from macro or even a micro perspective, the only way to get affordable housing and affordable, so outside of government help, is actually to have more supply. There needs to be more supply, so demand and pressure comes off it. You look at the auction markets at the moment, there's nothing on the market, and we're talking now we're in a housing boom or bubble because there's no supply and there's thousands and thousands of people trying to buy homes. So that will only continue until councils and the community, and it's as much the community that elect the councillors, realise that affordable housing comes through supply. It's not the opposite. But even if, even if you double the amount of the, the supply of, of apartments in Yarra, in Melbourne, in, in, in Australia, it, the price is an issue. But price is dictated by supply and demand. Do you, do, but but, but with, with things like inclusionary zoning, where you've got a built-in low-cost uh, percentage of low-cost units in, yeah. in a larger development, not, not mum and dad building an extra room at the back, but a, yeah. a development over a certain size. We have that in many countries of the world. We have little bits of it around yeah. in here, the 20% of the gas and fuel site, I think it's 6% yeah. of the Exam course site. Yeah. Um, you know, but it's very, very rare. I yeah. mean, do you... Do you, what, would you do, what would you say if, if the state government said, all right, we're going to mandate inclusionary zoning on all, for all developers, not just you, uh, on all developments over a certain size? I think it depends on what you're talking about. There's, there's social, there's affordable, and there's um, key worker sort of housing. So I think the easiest of all of it is probably that key worker, that fifty dollars to $90,000 wage bracket. That is something that could easily be dictated into developments. Where it does cause issues, if you go and dictate that social housing has to be a part of every single project, then you cannot do high-end accommodation. So it just totally dictates you can't do a 107 Cambridge Street and try to get the partners of KPMG or EY or those white-collar workers will not share in a 90 apartment building with social housing. So there, 
the social housing mix with luxury or higher-end apartments is a really, ch it's a big challenge. Um, and I think that is something the government has to lead. I think the, you know, the key worker like NRAS, I mean, NRAS was a really good policy and NRAS got a lot of accommodation out there for that lower income bracket of important workers. That's an easier one to tackle, but what makes it impossible for us is when the government or councillors say 8% social housing or 8% affordable housing in a building of 300, the building just won't go ahead because the buyers will not buy in there. They won't buy with a 20% mix of social housing. It's as simple as that. Do you think that the state government should build more public housing? Absolutely. There's, there's 100,000 I mean, on I the queue. I mean, as you know, you know it better than me, but I mean, the, Europe and America have some amazing systems set up for developers who can develop affordable and social housing. Mm. They make a lot less money than in a commercial venture, but allows them to construct and be part of the process. There needs to be a partnership with, you know, even, even what's just recently come out with the couple of billion dollars worth of social and affordable housing. No one understands it. I don't know if you understand it, but you know, they're sort of saying, we're gonna to come to you and we're gonna buy your site off you and we're gonna build it. They don't know how they're gonna build it, who's gonna build it, what's the actual process. Not once did they come and sit down with the top developers and say, we need to bring along 20,000 affordable housing in the next five years. How can we do it? How, what do we do together? You're the guys with the planning expertise, the building expertise, how do we do this? No one's once called me ever from mm. the government. Mm. And I'd sit down with them tomorrow and we'd be able to sort a solution for how do we actually help them get to the next level. And you and I have talked about locations where we could do it and you know, with the skill set council have and with what we have, it needs to be a public partnership with privates who understand how to actually deliver things. So the type of public housing, not necessarily the architecturally speaking, but the straight out 100% state owned public housing, like we see down the road here at Fitzroy, yeah. North Richmond, Collingwood and all the rest of it, um, you agree that that should be expanded for those people who cannot access even you know, l lower end private apartments because they're way, way out of their price range. 100%, and not, not only yeah. should it be provided, it should be provided to the demands that are there. Mm. Right? I, I mean, I, I don't know what the latest numbers are, but the numbers of people that don't have housing in the waiting list it's such a it's such a funny one around eighty thousand like, or so I think. Yeah, yeah I mean it's a yeah. frightening number. Like eighty thousand that like that is a lot of buildings to build and it's a lot of infrastructure and it's a lot of space. They need to get very serious about that. That's not a turnaround thing that's gonna be turned on quickly. Like they need people that can very quickly get those apartments to construction. And the other thing is be doing it where it's not gonna blow out three times on budget, actually deliver it to budgets. And the best people are gonna be able to do that is the public and private developers and why not work with them? In some parts of the world, um, and it's something that I've argued for here, where in the private uh, um, apartment market, where apartments are built and not, um, they're not lived in by the owner, that they have to pay higher rates to, to encourage, not just like yeah. empty buildings. So, so, you know, I'm living in one at the moment where I'm probably the only person on the floor that's living yeah. there. So- Is that because it's not because you're there, is it? Uh, maybe that's it, maybe you just burst my little bubble there. But um, <laughs> do you think that, uh, I mean, what, what's your view of that? I mean, when an investor I just buy, buys an apartment, so we've got the foreign and just, tax, just so then, sits on it, you know. So there's the foreign um, that for the foreigners they have to pay 1.5 percent, I think it is, as an absentee tax. Look, I think it's an interesting one. I, d I don't think it solves the problem. Like, I don't think I think the numbers the media talk about how many of them there are is is not right. I think, I mean, right now with COVID, the vacancy rates aren't a problem. Obviously, with COVID, vacancies are now 10 to 20 percent, and there's lots of lots of available rental stock out there. I think. It, I think it's got to be very specifically targeted to who we're trying to attract. So if it's if it is social housing, that needs to be accommodated, and that that is really something the government need to really focus on. And you know, if it's eighty thousand homes, that's a lot. That's a lot of change that has to happen. So there's real focus there. I think that the um, the key worker status stuff with the you know teachers and nurses that that to me feels like an easy solution. I think NRAS for that was, was a really good solution. Um, it incentivized, incentivized investors to provide housing for people in that wage bracket. I think those kind of things can work really well and it functioned and it worked because it was give and take on both sides. It gave developers something, it gave the community what they needed and it gave the politics what they needed to actually get things off the ground. Mm. So I'm not convinced that is, I don't think there's as many apartments as what people think that are empty. Okay. With, with um, climate change, we had a report recently in the city of Yarra that said that 84% of all emissions in Yarra 
uh, not from waste, not from vehicular traffic, it's from stationary energy, the powering of our buildings, our offices, our homes with uh, fossil fuel derived energy. So yeah. if we had mandated um, carbon neutral energy on, build, on construction sites over a certain size, yeah. I mean, I think that that could overnight massively lower emission rates in, in the city of Yarra and in Melbourne as a whole. I notice right. in um, at 2656 Queens Parade, you've you, you've brought you've had a you've got a carbon neutral energy policy there. Yeah. I mean, what's your view on that? Do you think that that would be good policy for government to mandate that? I think it's a it's a it's a balance, right? So if you do it, can apartment prices will go up by five to ten percent. So all the developers are doing is taking their construction cost base, all their cost base, adding a margin, which is between fifteen and twenty percent, which is what we have to make for the banks. And if cost goes up, which being carbon neutral cost definitely goes up at least 10% on the construction price, apartment prices will simply go up, rents will go up. So again, it's not, it's not just an easy fix of saying, okay, everyone's carbon neutral, because you'll then have another problem of affordability going through the roof. Again, the simplest way to do it is, you know, I'm a bit different. We've made a, a business decision that we want to be try to be carbon neutral on every single project, right? And that's not an easy thing to do. But that's something I've decided, you know, for my next generation, my kids and their kids, it's an important thing for me and us as a business, we've decided that's what we want to do. I can tell you most developers won't do that. It is an extremely costly exercise and you have to make a qualitative decision that you're willing to make less to make it happen. So one solution to it is similar to the affordable housing is, you know, it's got to be give and take. So, you know, you want four stories on your site, We'll give you five stories if it's carbon neutral and you give us 5% affordable housing. There has to be give and take or otherwise every bit of cost you add will just add to, const add to construction prices which then adds to revenues and prices. The um, question that I have to ask is just this avocado sandwich thing. I mean, uh, I, I was in America um, a couple of years ago and people had heard about it. I mean, um, just, I've got the quote here somewhere. Um, um, we're coming into a new reality here where a lot of people, this is you talking, a lot of people won't own a house in their lifetime. That's just the reality. Um, does it, do, do you believe that young people will never, home, uh, never own a home? Absolutely. When you're spending 40 bucks a day on smashed avocados and coffees and not working, of course that's going to happen. And, you know, that, the whole thing just went viral at yeah. the time. So what's your take on all of that? I mean, what we, what, what, just yeah. expand on what you were it's, trying to say there. It was a, it was a cl classic media. They, they did it. They managed it very well for their own benefit. Um, I did a four and a half hour interview, so I got asked to do a, an interview with Malcolm Turnbull, Harry Triggerboff, and me about the uh, an update on the property market. And I said, yeah, look, like you know, Harry's a, a idol of our industry, and obviously Malcolm was prime minister at the time, and so we did a four and a half hour interview, um, and we went to a couple of sites, and they interviewed like this. We talked about everything, absolutely everything, and we spent. 0.1% of the time on this one topic. Like literally it was, it was a 30 second conversation and he said, what do you think about the next generation? Exactly what the question you're asking me for about affordability. And I said, look, it's, it is gonna be brutal. It's gonna be very, very tough. Um, and it's something we need to find a solution for. And he said, what do you think about the millennial generation? I said, look, you can't, you can't be traveling to Europe every year, have to have the latest BMW, have three coffees a day and smashed avocado on toast for, I think I said $28 or $18 or whatever it was. They cut out that whole front section about the holiday and the latest BMW and the latest iPhone and focused on smashed avocado. And it was funny, I, um, you know, I'd said to the PR girls before that were helping me sort of prepare for it because it was a big interview at the time, you know, we've got to make sure that we just stick, stay on topic and don't let it be turned into something else. Because 60 minutes is a risk, as you'd know. It was something that in hindsight probably shouldn't have done because they do try to create a story out of whatever angle they can find. And, yeah, we got to the end of it and I thought, you know, the girl said we did a great job, it was perfect, everything was on topic, no issues. And then the, on the Sunday there was the preview for the, um, that night show and it said, oh, you know, multi-millionaire smashes millennials. And I go, oh no, what, what is going on? And then it, you know, it sort of aired and I'm like, holy shit. I didn't, they were so clever in the way they turned it from what the interview was to what it looked like. And yeah, I said it, absolutely. I said those comments, but it was in the context of, holidays, iPhones and everything else and you know the next day it wasn't that big a deal um, and then a girl called Susie O'Brien from the Herald Sun wrote this piece with the headline rolled gold wanker smashes millennials and I thought wow that's full on and I put it on LinkedIn and said Susie O'Brien here's my mobile number if you ever want to talk to me before you write about me make sure you call me and my LinkedIn went it literally blew up there was like 
300,000 comments in like 24 hours. And then the next day it went everywhere. I mean, we had, I was, I was, it actually made me, um, I, I was very, it took me about 72 hours and I literally fell apart because we had London, Ireland, US, every, like media was simply insane. They were out the front of our office, out the front of my home. It was interesting because in, in America, avocado and toast is $6. Probably, cheaper even, than probably even cheaper. Yeah, right? right. So I think they were just thinking, what the hell is this? It doesn't make any sense at all. And I think it just touched on, it wasn't, I don't think it was that it was me. It was just, it was the timing of the millennial conversation. Um, and the interesting thing is, you know, as you know, the, the social media trolls that are so dangerous and so scary in what they say about people were incredibly brutal. And I've, some of the stuff I read about myself was just unbelievable. And completely untrue and not founded. But on the flip side, I reckon 98% of people of me, like I had so many people call me agreeing, saying, look, I'd love my son to come and talk to you or my sister, my daughter to come and talk to you because they're exactly what you're talking about. They're saving nothing. They're spending all their money on social media and all this stuff that's not gonna add to their lives. So I think majority of the public understood the context and understood what it was about. But yeah, it was, a it was actually a really tough time on my, me and my family, it was brutal. Absolutely brutal. I just wonder what the impact of, I mean, you said earlier on in the interview that at one stage you were down to say a couple of K in, the, in, in your bank account, and now you clearly got a little bit more than that. I mean, according to the, if you believe uh, Google, you know, 600 million plus, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Like if it's 100 Don't million plus minus, it's online, still a lot yeah. of money. Yeah. So do you still have friends from school? Do you find that it's hard to know, uh, to, to, judge, to judge people, that people treat you differently? Like they laugh at all your jokes. They try to be. They want. They want to be. They yeah. want you to like them. Yeah. And everyone's trying to cut a deal with you, um, where you know it'd be hard to cross swords with you when you got six hundred million dollars in the bank or whatever it is. I mean, do you find that that's it's affected your relationships? I don't mean your your, your, your wife and kids. I'm talking about your friendship yeah. network. I think it has the potential to destroy relationships, hundred percent. But fortunately, I've got an amazing wife who keeps me very calm and stable. So we're. Every weekend we're down at our farm and we're out. We're not, we don't spend much time in Melbourne at all on the weekends, which keeps us really simple. We have a very simple life with my kids and my wife. Um, I'm very fortunate that my schoolmates and I are still very, very close, always have been. I don't think the, you know, the wealth side of it's an issue. The press side of it's probably more challenging. You know, you turn up and your mate from school where you used to beat each other up says, oh yeah, you're a wanker, you're on the front page of this, you're on the front page of that, I can't get away from you. You know, there is, there's that, element but I think any good friend who really cares about you from day one and remembers who you are and why you're that and they know I haven't actually changed like I haven't deep down changed at all I probably become more of an introvert I probably do less than I used to do in the old days so I think your genuine friends 100% are still there and it's exactly what it was I think it's you know sometimes you get people as as you would in your position that come trying to get things because of your position. I, I don't like that. It's, mm -hmm. you know, that is difficult and you'd get it more than I would. You know, anyone who has a, you know. I doubt that very much, but anyway. Well, but a public position where people can feel like they can get things from you, it, it is, um, yeah, that's probably more of the challenge. But, you know, my good mates that I've been friends with for 20 years, it's still exactly the same. We're at the pub on a Friday before last. It could have been exactly the same as what we were 22 mm -hmm. years ago. No difference. How long do you think this boom's going to last? I mean, um, us construction workers are, you know, hoping it just keeps going forever. I mean, will we still keep getting 100,000 people coming into Melbourne, um, which is, seems to be the driver for the yeah. construction boom? I mean, how long do you think it's going to go for? Yeah. It's, it's, it's unparalleled in, in construction history that yeah. we haven't had a downturn since the early 90s. Yeah. Notwithstanding the little slowdown last, last year. Yeah, I think, everyone, I think last year everyone was nervous, no question. Yeah. The builders are very nervous and the developers. I think. It's all going to come back to immigration. So if we can't get people back here next year, it will be a major problem, no question. So if the, you know, if the vaccine doesn't do what they think it's going to do and if the governments don't get proactive at getting the students back, I mean, we've lost 60,000 students from the CBD. You know, it's, we don't develop in the CBD, but the ripple effects of that through the community are huge, to the cafe operators, to the bus drivers, to the train drivers, to the you know, apartments in Collingwood. It is, does have a massive ripple effect. So I think... Immigration is key, they have to fix that, they've got to fix it quickly. It was up to me, I'd be doing something very proactive now to get students back. I mean, you've got universities that are going under. Now, we are a city that has been built on great education and we need to be able to keep those universities propped up. So, 
it's, it's all about immigration. If immigration comes back, I think we'll actually have a boom. Again, I think it will run very hard. If immigration doesn't come back, it'll be an absolute devastating disaster. What about the growing tensions between America and China and between China and Australia? I mean, obviously, there's, I mean, you'd have to call it really a sort of a mini trade war at the moment um, yeah. between Australia and China. And what's your worry? Do you have worries that that could trigger a recession and that could be disastrous for Australia? Yeah, it's interesting. I'm, I'm not quite sure yet is the answer. I think it's, um, it's, of course, a massive concern. I mean, it's shooting the golden goose in a sense. I don't really understand... Yeah, I'm sure ScoMo's got a, a very good reason for what he's doing. And I think, you know, the interesting thing about Trump, obviously most people love or hate him, but, you know, he's the first person to really stand up to China and say, hang on, guys, this is, you know, it, it's too one way. We need a balance here. And I think that was a good thing for the world. I mean, now he does it his own way. But, you know, I, I understand everyone needs to tell China we do have a say. But at the same time, they're an incredibly important trading partner and someone that we should be really nurturing in terms of relationship as well. So it is a balance. I mean, you know, people saying, oh, it's fine, China, we just won't, we won't use China. We'll go to all the other, you know, Vietnam, Malaysia and Singapore and we'll just turn, turn that on overnight. I yeah. mean, that's, it takes 20, 30, 40 years to do that. So, yeah, it's, it's a concern and something they should be thinking about. The reconfiguration of the, of the economic <clears throat> relation between Trump, America, prior to Biden, obviously, and, and, and China has been China, to a certain degree, America throwing Australia under the bus a bit. And yeah. China said, yeah, fine, we'll buy more American stuff. And we've been, you know, Australia suffered a bit from that. Yeah. Um, and I just wonder whether, um, you know, th th this dilemma that the people who run this country have between their political, historic political ties to America and their growing economic ties to China, yeah. like how that's going to play out. It's, it's probably the, it's the it's biggest massive. issue that, you know, I mean, and God forbid, a trade war even into some type of military conflict. Yeah. Um, I mean... It's the thing to watch. I mean, it's, it's everything, isn't it? I mean, it's the next 10 to 20, probably to 50 years will be about what China does with the world. I mean, they are going to be a huge power in the world. They're clearly trying to centralise their economy a bit more and rely less on the world. And that's going to have massive ramifications. And, you know, I, you know, I love multiculturalism in Australia. I think it's a great thing. And I think that the you know, Chinese coming exactly like the Italians did and the Greeks did and the Scottish did, I think it's a great thing for multiculturalism. And I'm not, you know, I'm pro anyone coming to this country. I think it's a great thing if they want to be here and embrace the culture, embrace what Australia's about, we should be encouraging it. You, you spoke about Trump just before Trump became president. Uh, you're quoted in the Financial Review saying that you'd, you'd met Donald Trump at the time. He was the real estate tycoon, uh, not, a, uh, not, not president of America. And you said, he's so unbelievably normal. He gave me a glass of water and a plastic cup. I asked him if he could, would consider investing in Melbourne or Brisbane. And he said he would, but only if it was the perfect product. He's looking at licensing out the Trump brand. I mean, now that he's, he's you know, he's unemployed. I mean, do you think yeah. that you'd, uh, you'd try to get him back here again as no, a co-investor? I don't think you'd be rushing now. It's interesting. I mean, at that time, that was a long time ago now. It was a year before he ran for president. And he would have had, without doubt, the strongest residential brand in the world. Yeah, he was known as the best luxury residential developer. And, you know, yes, he's always had his... You know, his stories about him and all of that. Um, but he was a very strong brand. And whenever he put the Trump brand or something, it meant something. But no, I don't think anyone would go anywhere near it right now. Do, do you think that um, you might ever get into politics? Absolutely no chance. But it, OK, fair <laughs> enough. But, but if you were, I mean, if you were the planning minister yeah. um, and you have this boom that you want to keep going, you've got um, obviously a lot of young people who um, can't afford to buy homes. As I said before, the, you know, the couch surfing, the, the homelessness, the rental. Yeah stress and so on. I think um, rents in the last few years have been have gone up twice the rate of CPI. Um, what would your policies be if you were the planning, if you were Richard, if you had Richard Wynn's job for yeah. a year? Well, first of all, I mean, the biggest thing I'll be doing firstly is dealing with the private companies. So you, not just the private, but the publics too. I mean, there has to be, you know, I don't understand this theory of the big bad developer. I mean, the developers are the ones delivering the product for people to house in, right? So you have to work how government and communities and local councils are scared of working with developers, it has to change, right? We are no different to how the retailers bring coffees to the masses, we bring housing to the masses, and we've got to be part of the conversation. I think, you know, I think it really needs to be broken down very carefully. I think social housing is something that, you know, there is definitely public um, partnerships that can be done with the private industry, but at the moment there's no focus on it, zero. So I think that's one sector that has to be focused on. 
There's then the affordable housing bit, which needs to be focused on, and that is definitely something that can be done in partnership with developers, but it has to be give and take. You know, Fisherman's Ben come in and saying, you're gonna pay $27,000 per apartment for infrastructure costs, and you're gonna do 7% affordable housing. Every single developer, their one bedrooms were 450, now they're 550. Mm. And how the government doesn't say why they can't see that adding costs, it's not like we make infinite money where we can just do whatever we want. We have a margin we have to make, and it's usually pretty thin, and then you have to put prices up to deal with increased costs. So there has to be that working together. I think like I'm a, I'm a big fan of the, um, the Melbourne 30, 2030 plan, the old yeah. um, central, the sort of the high street concept of Rob, I think it was Rob Adams at the time. I'm not a big um, advocate for developing in the green streets. <clears throat> I think the side streets of Melbourne are really important and I think it can deal with two or three levels, but I don't think that it should be five or six levels through the green streets. I think we've got great opportunity along all our high streets um, to bring in five, six, seven, eight storeys through those high streets and on the major strategic sites. Like, Queen's Parade's a prime example. That is a site, I think looking back in 20 years time, people go, geez, that's underdeveloped for what the region actually needs. Because North Fitzroy is an example. There's not many development sites, right? But hundreds of thousands of people want to live there. Mm. So it's all good for people in, you know, the people in their backyard saying, we don't want anyone else here, but that's because they're there. All the people that want to get in want to be there. It's not but I, I guess a lot of people want to live there because of the historic shopping strips and the, and the, and the village atmosphere and you know you can destroy the goose that lays the golden egg. Yeah, of course. If, no, no. if, if you uh, along Queen's Parade where the shops are, if you went five, six, eight, ten storeys there, it wouldn't be Queen's Parade know, anymore. Have, but it's going to change. It's going to, it has to change. We've got to, you know, it's, it's chicken before the egg. If you want affordable housing, you need money for the government. That money comes from stamp duty and taxes. You can't get that money unless developers are actively doing things. So you can't, you can't have continued construction wage growth without the builders busy. The builders have to be able to create housing for the population that's coming in. So if populations come in, they have to go somewhere. And the solution isn't just to throw everyone 20, 30K out of the CBD. That's a disaster. But there's, there's plenty of development sites in Yarra that aren't you know, historic shopping strips, like South Collingwood, for example, Cremorne and places like that, and that's why there are cranes all over there. And, you know, we can have our arguments uh, that, you know, develop, not you personally, but developers and, and, and the community over the height and so on, but it seems to me that's perfect place to, to, go, to go up Wellington Street's another totally appropriate place for so what, how development. Do you, how do you answer the issue of, um, you know, Smith Street's pretty dead, Johnson Street's dead, you know, Chapel Street's dead, Bridge Road's dead, Fitzroy Street's dead. There are no retailers making any money. It's completely impossible because there's no one there anymore. So how do you revive those shopping strips that are all completely dead? I think there's a lot of land banking taking place. And I think, especially say down in Victoria Street, there's a change in, in, like from, from, from restaurants into clubs and retail, just like Bridge Road has changed in the last 10 years. Yeah, but um, it's dead. I mean, every second shop's for lease. You know, I think the councillors in the community... But, but if you were to, you know, but, but I, I think that could change in the next few years. And the number of people that are moving in to Fitzroy and to Collingwood, I mean, you know better than I do. I mean, there's cranes everywhere here. They're going to shop here. But that's, but that's the whole point. It's the development and the density that brings the shops back. Mm. You can't have these strips with no development and no density because there's no one here to activate them. Mm. I mean, I can tell you I own a fair bit of retail through Collingwood. Most people are not paying their rent or they're way behind. Yeah, in terms of retailers, no one's making money. It is brutally hard. And the council need to, council have to care about the survival of the main streets and not just care by protecting, it's not just about protecting heritage. Yeah, heritage is really important. I love, one of the biggest reasons why I'm in Collingwood is the heritage, but the heritage means nothing if the businesses can't thrive and actually make money. And you, you speak to any restaurateur or cafe at the moment, none of them making money. None of them can pay their rent, none of them can afford to be there, and they're all going broke. So there has to be a solution. Yes, the streets have to be protected, but the streets mean nothing if there's no one making money. Yeah, but I think that the reason that most of the, for example, the nighttime economy around here, which is a huge part of the Yarra economy, is suffering is because of COVID. It's not because of the lack of people that are moving mm. into the area. You reckon? And as soon as they opened, they just went you know, gangbusters again. But Yeah, they're all still not paying rent, I can tell you. All right, well, yeah, like it's, it's, I mean, we're, 
We work very closely with our retail partners because we want to support them and make sure their business is a success. And I know how brutally hard it is for them. And it's not because we're charging above market rents. We're, we're market on every single rent deal that we have. Mm. It is so hard for retailers and coffee shops and bars and everyone to make money. Unless you are purely alcohol focused, none of the cafes are making money. I mean, you know them, you're talking mm. to them. Mm. You know, there'd be maybe a couple proud Marys, there'd be a couple that are doing well. No, they're doing it really tough. Everyone yeah. else is doing it tough. And, you know, I look at, you know, outside and of their city workers, of especially, and, and they were laid off. Yeah, and they work hard. You know, these guys are killing themselves. So it's a, I look at Fitzroy Street and Bridge Road in particular. Like Fitzroy Street could be and should be one of our best streets in Melbourne. There isn't a retailer down there that's making money. Not in one. In St Kilda? Not one. Yeah. It is an absolute devastation. It's every second shop or almost every shop is for lease or for sale and nothing can happen there. The only way that changes is more people, more density, there needs to be change. And you know, it's the balance between protecting heritage and making sure the city continues to work. Mm. And you know, I, I think you know, like I love heritage, and most of our buildings around here have a heritage element, but heritage doesn't mean it never changes. It, it can be embraced and actually you know, supported and, and pushed forward, like the Spanish club. Spanish Club's a prime example. I mean, they would have had to move 20 kilometres out of town. Thanks to you and, and the planning process, we were able to come up with something that worked for them. We now paid out their debt. They can operate there for the next 100 years. And that's a great thing for the community. If we weren't able to do that, they'd be out. They'd be 30K out of the city and the club wouldn't be there anymore. Just one last question to a mate of mine who thinks very highly of you. He said, he's like the Ali G, Tim, t talking about you. So he's like the Ali G of capitalism. I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, <laughs> if I got a billion dollars tomorrow, I would trademark my name and I would put it on every crane that I, that I had on every building site. So yeah. like, what was that about? I mean, you, you, you've got, your, very, your brand is very big. I mean, to you and to your company, that's yeah. like all your cranes have your name on it. Um, explain to me a little bit about the thinking behind that. It's a funny one, when I had uh, 14 years ago, sorry, in 2014, when we started this business, we had to the creative company, creative business and said, look, we, I want to start something that's really genuine and it's real. We want to deliver a real product that people love. And they put four options out on the table. One was Gurner. I'm like, I'm absolutely not doing Gurner. No chance. It's a ridiculous and just look completely stupid. And we started talking about whatever it was project, whatever it was called or something else. And they came back the next session, had Gurner with the TM on it. I looked and I thought, oh, she actually looks like a brand. Actually looks like something rather than my name. And the, the lady at the time, Sally, who owns Playground Creative, who's by far the best branding and creative in Melbourne, said to me, this is, you know, if you're serious about this and you're serious about doing a real product, you need to put your name to it, you need to stand behind it and deliver what you promise. And it really stuck with me in it. And I thought, you know what, you're right. We do need to stand behind it. And, Anyone who knows me well is the brand and how we position ourselves is the most important thing to me by mile. Money definitely comes second to how we deliver for our purchases. So we promise a big game, we have to over deliver. And that's why the brand has slowly got momentum and got strength, but it's continuing to over deliver on what we promise. Where do you want to be in five years time? Uh, probably pretty similar, doing, doing what we're doing. I love what we do, I'm very fortunate. Yeah, we're dealing with at the moment a, a big growing business, which has got a lot of challenges with big, more resources, more team. I'm not, I'm not a great manager of team. I'm very good with a, with a smaller bunch. So that's a, that's a challenge for the business at the moment we're going through. But from a business brand perspective, it's doing more of what we're doing and better. So it's always trying to challenge, push the norm of what we're doing um, and just continue to do what we do. I, I love what we do. I'm very lucky that I'm extremely passionate about design and creating great things. And that's what we focus on. Tim, thanks for coming on the show. Good Thanks, to see you mate. again. Thanks, Thanks to see you, mate. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Tim. Cheers.